And if you brought a Bible, now would be a great time to open it to the book of Galatians as we continue a series of messages entitled Gospel Reset. That is learning more and more to walk in alignment with the gospel, to live our lives out of the resources of the gospel and to have the gospel shape and contour our hearts. Today we will be looking at the fifth chapter of the Galatians uh, chapter verse 14 and we will read to about verse 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. It is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, we need to hear it today in new ways. We need to have our eyes opened by your Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to come and work in our hearts, to do that which only He can do, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. And may you, Holy Spirit, glorify and magnify Jesus. Make him large for us and help us to see how much we need him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Today I want to talk about the right relational dynamics of the gospel or the relational challenges we face in the gospel. And in doing so, I begin to think about how I grew up in my home. And I grew up in a very, let's say, highly competitive environment. Sibling rivalry on steroids. I had two brothers, one older, one younger. And our lives were spent in intense competition. And so we lived in the culture of what I call calling it. Have you ever heard of calling something? For example, when we got up in the morning, you had to call when you got the funny paper out of the newspaper. Secondly, 
when you got breakfast in the order, because there were three of us. Thirdly, which stool you got to sit on. So the moment I rolled out of bed, I'm calling it. I got first funny paper, I got first breakfast, but you had to identify the breakfast. Because the breakfast could have been waffles, pancakes, or eggs and bacon. And if you called it, you had to get it right. But I figured my mom out. She did it three days, two days. I figured it out. So I would get up, first words out of my mouth were what? Uh, first funny paper, waffles, middle seat on the stool. We had a little bar there where mom cooked and then she would put it in front of us. The middle seat was the best seat. And I knew I was going to have a good day because I called it. And when you called it, you called it. Same thing happened in, uh, anywhere we went in the automobile. You had to call your seat. If mom wasn't going or only mom was driving, no other parent, you called shotgun. If mom was driving, dad was in the car. She never drove when dad was in the car. Dad drove. She was, uh, had the shotgun seat. But we had a 55 Chevrolet. And so there were three seats in the back. And the best seat in the back was the seat behind my mother because you had more room. Uh, the worst seat in the back seat was the middle seat because the 55 Chevrolet in the floorboard has this huge hump. And so you were uncomfortable. So I want to tell you that every moment of my existence, when we went to church, I called where I sat on the pew. I called everything, baseball, football, basketball, whatever you were playing, you had to call it. And if you called it, you had the final word on it. I could always beat my younger brother because he was so slow to wake up. So he tried to pull it one day. He said, I call all week long this, 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 this. No, that doesn't work. I think to this day that's why I wake up early because I'm still thinking about calling the three things I had at breakfast. But sometimes it would get a little out of hand. And uh, the reason why is because if you called it and you got it, you sort of gloated and uh, felt very superior to the ones who didn't. And if you lost, you would sulk and pout until you were told, I'll give you something to pout about. Uh, the whole everything, the whole story of my childhood was one of being intensely competitive, rivalry. We, if we played games, it was like blood. It was like, I remember pitching cards, just, just regular a deck of cards against the wall. And if we, whoever got them the closest to the wall would win the game. And I threw one and it just landed and stood straight up against the wall. And my older brother went over and kicked the card down. And he said, it didn't get next to the wall. I picked up a TV tray and wailed on that boy. <laughs> Only later to discover that he would ultimately die of brain tumors. You know, I didn't know it then, but it made me feel bad later. But I have to tell you, that kind of rivalry, I, I, I was sort of glad to move away and go to college and not be in this context of intense pressure all the time. It was a relational disaster in my home, and it very much operated according to the law. That is, whoever the lawgiver was. But we just did not play well with each other, and it was never peaceful at my house. Paul encountered the same thing at Galatia, only these weren't children calling it. These were adults who were 
devouring one another and consuming one another and biting, as it were, one another. These were people who were in constant conflict and they were over conflict regarding how Gentiles could receive full status in the church. And so the law keepers, the ones who were used to the ethic of the law, lorded it over them and told them they were something less and lacking unless they incorporated into their salvation Christ plus the law. Yes, receiving Jesus is a good start. We're glad you're not pagans anymore, but we want you to add a circumcision to yourself. And Paul goes apoplectic over this because he realizes that the moment you do that, you're doing something that is terrible. And so we're talking more and more about having a gospel paradigm, but I want to talk about that interpretive grid we get from the gospel, how the gospel shapes our lives, and learning how to see how it relates to our relationships. Because I would venture to say, every one of you have relationship more by law than you do by grace. I do. I have been so convicted this week of my own legalism my own way of relating to people according to the law and not according to grace. And it's hard to see. I mean, we're kind of blinded to it. But today, let's jump right in. Uh, the relational impact of the gospel. The Apostle Paul wrote this earth-shaking epistle to the Galatians to address a very deeply conflicted congregation in Central Asia Minor. He observed in the Galatian Christians a host of symptoms indicative of competitive rivalry and interpersonal hostility. They were biting and devouring each other. They were becoming conceited and provoking each other. Between these two statements, the apostle contrasts the deeds and the desires of the flesh to the spirit and its fruit or his fruit. Paul's list basically says competition bred by pride is the dominant motif in Paul's list of the deeds of the flesh. Of course, when you look at those in chapter 5, verses 19 and through 21, you see that Paul lists the deeds of the flesh, and it opens and closes with very blatant, sensual, and pagan vices, overt violation of the law's commandments, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These are the usual suspects that pagans would bring with them as they were converted, the sins that Paul's Judaizing opponents would expect to see in an inventory of Gentile depravity. At the core of the list, however, perhaps to the Judaizers' discomfort and dismay, and to the Galatian believers' surprise, is even a longer series of attitudes expressive of uh, of competitive rivalry and hostility. Things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, contention, dissensions, factions, envy, those less visible but more corrosive habits of the heart that were disintegrating interpersonal relationships throughout the Galatian congregations. All such fleshly deeds, whether of the body or speech or thought, disqualify those whose lives are totally characterized by them from inheritance in God's kingdom, kingdom, from the blessings promised to Abraham's children. 
Paul is a master diagnostician, and he recognized the spiritual disease by its symptoms under the influence of the teachers who claimed that law observance could complete the Gentiles' incorporation as Abraham's heirs, an incorporation begun through the belief in the gospel, these believers were subtly shifting the weight of their reliance and basis of their boasting from Jesus back to themselves. Through the life-giving work of God's Spirit, they had entered into the covenant with the living God by the hearing of faith. When Jesus was displayed as crucified in Paul's preaching, having begun by the Spirit by relying utterly upon Christ, however, they subsequently succumbed to the plausible lie that their completion as Abraham's heirs could be achieved only by the flesh. What is flesh? Self-effort, self-reliance, by their own performance and adhering to God's commands. Paul could uh, express only bewilderment at these people and bewitchment. Paul's theological argument in Galatians sharply contrasts alternative paths to justification and resurrection life. The path characterized first by faith in God's promise and the dynamic of the Spirit over against the path characterized by doing all things written in the book of the law in reliance on the flesh. The former, of course, secures a person and it secures um, their status as children of God. Not only vindication of life, but the status of sons and heirs as Abraham's promised seed. And it does so for believers of all nationalities without distinction. The latter, that is the law way, produces curse and death. Because the law, though revealing God's holy character and the corresponding obligation of his servants lacks any power to reverse our spiritual death and enable our compliance with its requirement. In chapter 3 verse 21 Paul clearly says this, for if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would come by how? Indeed by the law. Paul take, makes two very dramatic interpretive moves to dra dramatize how alien to the gospel of Christ is a salvation that shifts the ground of assurance as believers move from the initiation of life in Christ by faith in God's promises to maturation by means of compliance to the commandments. First, he identifies the law's commands with the enslaving obligations that the Gentiles have experienced in pagan idolatry, referring both within a few sentences of each other as elementary principles, stoikia in the Greek, and enslavement. The term is rare, of course, in Paul's writings, but it's used a couple of times in Colossians, and in other places where Paul, I don't think, wrote Hebrews, or, and I know he didn't write Second Peter. Paul applies it first to the law, soon thereafter to the non-gods that the Galatians had served before their faith in order to draw these two religious systems, apparently so different from each other, together under a single categorization. Now, here's what I'm getting at. It's common 
to interpret Paul's use of stoikia, the elemental things of the universe, as referring to malevolent spiritual beings and to support this identification by Colossians. But it is also used in the immediate context to refer to human traditions and regulations rather than to superhuman spirits. In Galatians, the law pedagogical or custodial role in the history of redemption uh, lasted until the arrival of Christ, the object of faith, and is explained by the analogy of pedagogues or tutors or managers who control an heir as long as he is a minor, making his daily experience like slavery. In connection, Paul, this is, I'm getting to the point here that ought to shake you up in a minute, but you got to listen. In this connection, Paul describes the law's commands as elemental principles. That is, controls appropriate to the heir's minority rather than the epoch of maturity and investiture. Now that Messiah has uh, arrived and with him the era of the heir's liberation to seek spiritual security in commandment keeping is tantamount to returning to idols whom the Galatians once sought to placate by their own performance. So Paul is saying there's such a thing as idolatry to the law. Because the law gives us what? A sense of control and a hopeful outcome. The only problem with the law and the only problem the law has ever had is nobody can keep it. Nobody, only one, ever kept it. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can't keep it. And so Paul is saying, now he would never uh, equate the law given at Sinai, which is holy, righteous, and good, with the Galatians' pre-Christian pagan practices when they were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. Yet he daringly implies that the Galatians' submission to circumcision, that is the obligation to keep the whole law, as the condition of continuing in a covenantal status would entail a return to the weak, worthless elements that they had left when they turned from idols to Christ. So the law was never designed by its giver to impart life to fallen human beings. And to try to use it as a means of justification is to distort it into an implement of idolatry to deify our own obedience as a rival redeemer and justifier in competition with God's provision in the Messiah. And so that, here's what Paul's saying. We tend to categorically condemn pagan vices. They are horrible. They are... Uh, they uh, are so destructive, they uh, harden the heart, as it were. But he does the same thing to adding the law to Christ to make yourself have full status before God that your performance rating determines your relationship. And he said that's just as bad or subtly even worse than the pagan vices. Now isn't that something? See, most of us as legalists, and we're all recovering legalists. Some of us aren't recovering at all. We're in the throes of it. And I'm going to show you how that works in a minute. But uh, 
the, the legalism that Paul is castigating. See, you would never think if a person who is a good, moral, upstanding citizen, a decent uh, man, a good husband to his wife, a good father over his children, a man who, as far as morality outwardly, looks like he's living by the Ten Commandments, uh, and, and then you take a person who's the most wretched, gutter, low-down, stinking, technicolor sinner you could find and bring them into the church, both are equally lost if they don't trust and rely upon Jesus. One's not better than the other. One's not different than the other. Which should help us in our encounters with people whose moral standards are less than ours or lower than ours. We're not really any better because legalists and lawless people are doing the same thing. What are they doing? They are misusing the law. And so as you work with people who may be in the area of gender or in the area of sexual preference or whatever, sometimes we want to take the moral high ground there because we think we're not as bad as them. But Paul is leveling the ground in Galatians and saying being a religious self-righteous person is really in no way superior to being an irreligious immoral person he says it let me show you where he says it in Galatians chapter 5 look back at verse 6 what does Paul say he says for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision what circumcision circumcision is submitting yourself to the whole of the law so he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision what is uncircumcision Gentile paganism horrible immorality in Christ Jesus that is those who are united to Christ being in Christ Jesus neither law-keeping nor lawlessness counts for anything but only faith working through love so what distinguishes the gift of God of faith which expresses itself in reality by works of love toward whom? Our neighbors. Learning how to build healthy relationships. And so that is the first bomb he drops. And then he makes another move in Galatians that's even just as radical. He identifies law reliance with Ishmael. This all takes place in chapter 4. The rejected son, born of Abraham's flesh-bound union with the concubine Hagar. You remember Ishmael. Paul's symbolic interpretation of Genesis 16 and Genesis 21 links Ishmael, the slave woman's son, with Sinai, the present Jerusalem, capital of the Jewish establishment that had rejected and spurned the Messiah Jesus in favor of the Torah, the temple, and the tradition. Ishmael was the son born of flesh, not because sexual intercourse produced his conception, Sarah would conceive in the same way, but because he represents the way of attaining God's promise through efforts within human capacity and control rather than through utter reliance upon God's power to confer his promised blessing, which lies utterly beyond any human resources, strategies, or efforts. By contrast, Isaac is aptly described as the product of divine promise and the spirit 
and imparts resurrection life to the reproductively dead Abraham and Sarah. Like Isaac, Christian believers are born by spirit-wrought faith in God's promise and are the free sons who inherit the fullness of the covenant blessing promised to Abraham. The Ishmael-Isaac flesh-spirit contrast lays the foundation upon which Paul distinguishes the flesh's divisive deeds from the spirit's graceful fruit. By making believers' status and tenure in God's favor contingent on their own faithfulness in covenant-keeping, of course with divine assistance, the Judaizers' so-called gospel sowed seeds of insecurity or pride and both into expressions of competition and rivalry, the very antithesis of faith expressing itself through love. Such manifestations of the flesh, no less than libertine sensuality, disqualify qualify people from God's kingdom. So, Paul makes this profound argument in Galatians that is counterintuitive to the unbelieving heart. And he does so by bringing us home to the reality that it is only justification by faith alone in Christ alone that brings us into the kingdom and then he continues Galatians because Galatians isn't merely a book about justification it's a book about sanctification but he also says that sanctification is by faith that we continue as we began that we learn to walk in the power of the spirit not relying upon ourselves now that's Paul's theological point up to this position. How then does the assurance grounded wholly in Christ's work, preeminently in the cross, work its way out into applications to the conflicts that threaten to tear apart the Galatians' churches? Paul's gospel never breeds passivity or quietism. Rather, he appeals to believers' new grace-given identity in order to spur us on toward attitudes and actions consistent with who we are in Christ by grace through faith. Because believers have been crucified with Christ, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, preeminently in this context, its passion and desire for superiority over others. That, that hunger for superiority, that hunger and competition and rivalry and envy and jealousy, that's flesh. And that's ugly. You know, I read one time, uh, I was a Southern Baptist pastor at one time in my life. Uh, I was a pastor for 13 years. And during that time, I remember reading a statistic from the denomination that said this. The average pastoral length of service at any church in that denomination was 17 months. Now I'm going to make a statement, and it applies to none of you, maybe some of you. Some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life I met in church. Mean people, self-righteous people, contentious people, competitive people, people who run over people, uh, just 
And, 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 and it's usually done in the name of glorifying God. I don't know how it glorifies God, but that's generally what the person doing it claims. Why, where does all that meanness come from? It comes from the flesh, which ha hasn't been crucified by the power of the Spirit. So what does that look like in a person's life? How do we see that? Well, in 2008, I wrote a newsletter article that I'm sure every one of you remember. You want to get discouraged, uh, just quiz the congregation the next week on what you preached and last. I can't even remember. I can't even remember what I preached last week. But how do we do that? Well, I've got something here called uh, Recovering Legalist and Using Evil the law in very evil ways. Consider these relational commandments we give to others. First, commandments for our children. Just listen to them. What's wrong with you? Why are you so selfish? Because I said so. I don't care what you think. Stop whining. What on earth were you thinking, knucklehead? Because I'm your mother. No. Do you not know the meaning of the word no? Why can't you just be normal? Didn't I just tell you that? Didn't I just say it? I'm not having that in my house. You live in my house. You put your feet under my table. You eat the food I serve you. You do what I say or you hit the bricks. And don't let the door hit you. That's a law way of addressing our children, a very legal way. How about commandments for our marriages? You're late. You're always late. It'd be nice if you help sometime instead of sitting in that chair with your little computer, your little laptop. I wish you wouldn't do that. It drives me crazy. Next time I wish you'd why are you looking at me like that? I don't remember you telling me that. Now, this is, that's a classic man. Classic man. I mean, as pure and as godly as I am, that's happened in my home. <laughs> I have been told. I told you that. And I said, well, it must have been somebody that looked like me. <laughs> must have been somebody that you thought was me. But it was not me. You have never said that to me. Yes, I have. You don't listen. Now, men, let me let you in on a little secret. Women have a very different definition for what listen means than you and I do. When we listen, we just get the basic information. Okay, yeah, got it. When a woman says you don't listen, it means you do not enter in and feel all I'm feeling. You do not carefully weigh and see the impact of what I'm saying. You do not cut yourself and grovel and crawl across broken glass and ask my forgiveness. No, it's not that bad. It's awfully quiet in here. Few people laughing. What's your problem? Well then, let's just get a divorce. Oh boy, here we go again. Same fight, same problem over and over. What in the world is the matter with you? My wife used to make our children, when they got up in a bad mood, which happened sometimes, 
she would make them go get in the bed and get out of the other side of the bed because they got up on the wrong side of the bed. Let me tell you, there was no joy in that. Why can't you just do this one thing for me? I give up. I give up. I'm done. I'm done. How about commandments for the workplace? You're holding up my work. Why are you always late? You don't recognize me or my efforts. You never compliment me. You never encourage me. You don't work as hard as I do. His phone is so loud I can't hear myself. There's never paper in the copier. Why wasn't I consulted? Don't talk outside my office. What's the big deal if I'm late? I stay late and work late. Why do you come in when you're sick? Why don't you put things back where they were? Why am I always cleaning up your messes? Now, what is the problem with comments like this? And what do they illustrate? Usually, these statements are demanding and illustrate wrong uses of the law. They demonstrate the following principle. Idle leads to wrong use of law that leads to a demanding spirit. Behind every demand is a wrong use of the law, and behind every wrong use of the law is a ruling idol. So for the example, for example, the question, why are you so selfish, is a demanding and meaningless question. Here the law, do not be selfish, is being used for evil purposes to condemn others in order to feed a ruling idol. Asking this question is a way of relying on the law to bring life to another person. Why are you so selfish acquires meaning and relevance only when you ask that question of yourself. So how can we sum up relational dissonance that comes from relational legalism, which is a wrong use of the law? We use the law wrongly when we use it to gain control or power or comfort or order or status or reputation by defending, blaming, credit-mongering, comparing, or accumulating karma. I use the law incorrectly when I use it to get life. The law is not a list of rights I can claim for myself and others. Rather, I am called to bestow on others what the law requires. And what is that? Love. What are the two greatest commandments in the Bible? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second commandment is like unto it in importance. Love your neighbor as yourself. None of those comments. Reflect loving your neighbor as yourself. A wife once wrote to dear Abby with the following complaint. I have a husband who keeps a record. And he keeps a record of everything. He keeps a chart. And it's very detailed. He keeps a record of how I cook, how I clean the house, how I perform in every way. It's all on the chart. And every day I have to give an account to this man. So what occurs from the wrong uses of the law, according to that illustration? Death occurs. Death for other people. Death! A form of godliness without the power. Pretense occurs. The husband has brought death to the marriage. He lives, she dies. Yet he lives in pretense, for it's clear he's a lawbreaker of the worst kind. He's a whitewashed tomb. 
Why do we so often use the law in wrong ways? If we live this way, then we do not need the gospel. What do I need the gospel for? I can use the law to stay out of relationships, and I feel justified in doing so. With this way of life, other, the others are the lawbreakers. We don't have to repent. We don't have to die to ourselves. We don't have to deny ourselves anything. If we can bring obedience through nagging, then we can get along without faith in the Holy Spirit. Why pray when we can force people and compel people to do what we want? Why is it so hard to see that way of life as being so wrong? Why is it so hard to give up? Because the law is good. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that all the uses of the law are right and spiritual. We end up justifying ourselves. Meanwhile, we leave a trail of death behind us. You see, when you don't get the gospel, it doesn't soak down into your soul. And it doesn't make its way out in how you relate to other people. You are walking death. You bring life to nobody. Why? Because you don't have any grace. Grace, mercy, that's what brings life. That's what nurtures relationships. But to be demanding because of a certain ruling idol you have in your own heart only brings death. We end up justifying ourselves. Wrong uses of the law come from powerful idols rooted in the heart. And therefore change is exceedingly difficult. Only by smashing and dismantling these idols through faith in the gospel can relational legalism be overcome. In what areas are you a lawgiver rather than a law keeper? How are you using the law in wrong ways? How can you apply the gospel to these situations? May the God, by, may God, by the enablement of the Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ Jesus, deliver us from such a plague as relational legalism. You know, I've noticed something as a pastor, and I close with this. Over the past 30 years or so, the church has produced much material on proper relationships in the family. Hundreds of books on family life have been written. Proper roles for husbands and wife, parents and children have been defined because God has established the family and told us how to love each other. Many of these books can be useful. We do need to know God's perspective and desires on our relationships, what they are, and how we should embrace them. But the problem with the majority of these books, however, is that they point out the obligations of the gospel without ever first rehearsing the declarations of the gospel. In other words, they swallow you up with imperatives and they don't give you any indicatives of grace. Like most of us, these authors have made a mistake of assuming that we've heard enough of the gospel that we don't need it any longer. Focusing on the obligations of Scripture without mentioning the gospel has resulted in a works-oriented perspective in family relationships and idolatry of the family and in despairing or self-righteous husbands and wives and children who wonder why it is so hard to obey. That is why the gospel has to be kept 
sinful. If you forget that you are sinful and flawed, it will easy be easy to become self-righteous and harsh with people in your relationships. A husband who's forgotten the gospel is often callous and demanding. He's tempted, this is the Christian, so-called Christian husband, he's tempted to rule his home as a dictator and point out how his wife and children must submit to his leadership. He views any uh, of their failures as a direct attack on his leadership, and he insists on perfect obedience, whether in the way his wife cooks as to how children make their beds. He's forgotten that part of the gospel. He's forgotten the servant leadership of his Savior who washed the feet of his disciples. A wife who's forgotten that she's sinful and flawed can be harsh and judgmental. She finds it easy to point out her husband's failures, of which usually there are many. And she thinks that her growth and maturity is hindered because her husband isn't the spiritual leader he should be. Oh, give me a break. When her husband prays, she criticizes his prayer in her heart. When he watches television, she remembers all the hours she has spent in Bible study comparing herself to him. That's death. That's death. There's no life in that. So, gospel reset means that every day we wake up and remember the gospel and what it says about who we are and where power for living comes from and to repent. You're always repenting. That's what Martin Luther said. The first of his 95 theses, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ has commanded that we repent daily. Why? Because we all have a lot to repent of. You see, this stuff about obeying the law and being saved by keeping the law seems so remote and distant from us. When was the last time you ran into anybody who was really trying hard to keep the law? Maybe Martin Luther did. Hardly anybody else ever did. But when you see it in relationships that you have, then you begin to see, I do have this problem. And that there is only one solution to any problem. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses all of our pathologies. We are all deeply flawed. Sometimes I think I just can't see any more of it without dying. Martin Luther said, if God showed you your sin all at once, you die. That's why we need to keep repenting and keep returning and keep resetting to the gospel. That should be our daily bread. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the wisdom uh, imparted in the book of Galatians still speaks so strongly today. I pray that we would all learn to be quick to repent. It's so easy to see the flaws in others and so hard to see them in ourselves. But we pray that your spirit would do that deep work in us of totally dismantling any foundation we stand on other than the gospel and really teaching us how to depend upon Jesus and rely upon him. Now, Father, as we continue to worship this morning, 
we pray that as we have heard your word and celebrated in the beauty of the gospel, we would now give with a cheerful spirit toward your work here at this church and also around the world in missions. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.